lesson text today comes from the Gospel according to Mark, 10th chapter, verses 32 and 45. Jesus and the disciples were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Jesus took the twelve aside and again began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus replied to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus replied to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now when the ten heard all this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their leaders, lord it over them, and the great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, <coughs> and to give his life a ransom for many. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts may bring honor and glory to you. Amen. So this year we are doing a very traditional Lent, going through the Passion narrative, and we are continuing reading through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, again, is making it clear that this is a turning point in the Gospel, that Jesus has done his missionary works out in Galilee, where he has healed and preached the word, and now he is turning and going towards Jerusalem. And so that the Twelve would not be completely without some warning of what was going to take place when he gets to Jerusalem, Jesus again prophesies <coughs> his death upon the cross and his resurrection. It's an interesting scene here, though, and one that most movies get wrong. We, if you watch the Discovery Channel or a lot of American-made movies, always have Jesus facing the disciples. It's always the hope. You notice that it gets from our therapeutic culture, the how does that make you feel, and all that, where everyone is in a council sitting around, everyone is equal. Here Jesus is portrayed very differently in verse 32. Jesus was walking ahead of them, 
they were amazed, and those following were afraid. It's not really normal to be afraid of someone going out ahead unless they are walking out with a strong sense of purpose, shoulders forward, head down, determined. Jesus is here giving off enough of a, a sense of purpose as he's going up to Jerusalem that those around him are amazed. And so here we get an image of Christ that is not normally used in our movies, in our paintings, but one 1960s movie got very correct from Italy. Here Christ is standing with his back to the disciples. He is looking forward towards the kingdom. He's looking forward towards Jerusalem, towards his crucifixion. And the disciples are behind him, and they are looking at his back. And as they are going, they are even afraid of where Jesus is leading them. So this is a forward-looking Jesus when he finally says to them in 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and he continues to tell them about his crucifixion. And we see just how far behind the disciples are in 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the two brothers, they had to plan to come up to Jesus and first try to bind him with a promise. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. We want to try to get Jesus to agree to it before he even is asked. They're definitely brothers, and they probably use this one on Zebedee quite a bit. Hey, Dad, just agree to whatever we're going to ask you. Okay, kids. Okay. <coughs> well, Jesus sees through that, and in 36 says, what is it that you want me to do? Then we see just how far behind the disciples are in 37. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus is here out ahead of the disciples, heading towards his crucifixion, his rejection by the people of Israel, and to give his life as a sacrifice for many. The disciples, however, just like those crowds that we'll learn about at Palm Sunday, see the messianic homecoming that Jesus is preparing in a very different way. Jesus is having to drive himself in tribulation for what's coming towards Jerusalem. But some of this amazement, some of this being afraid of the disciples as they're behind Jesus, is they're finally expecting Jesus to kick into the messiahship that they had expected. They're expecting Jesus to go into Jerusalem, reclaim the, the throne of David, just like at Palm Sunday, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They are expecting Jesus to finally go down to Jerusalem and drop the hammer. And it's shown by the fact that they are talking to Jesus about his glory. Sitting at his right hand and his left hand, we make a little too esoteric. We tend to talk about, well, they're asking when Christ is up in heaven if they can sit at his right hand and left hand. This is very much more they are asking to sit in the position of honor at the banquet that they expect to be coming down here on earth very soon. It shows a complete disconnect between what Jesus says is going on and what the disciples expect to happen. And it repeats a whole bunch of things that we've looked at already in Mark, that they just refuse to accept Christ as the crucified Messiah. This is very much the same rejection that Peter gets. Talk about Peter, James, and John, the main disciples. Well, Peter says to Christ, You are the Son of God. And Jesus said, Well, that's the rock on which I will build my church. 
Jesus tells him, no, the Christ must be crucified. And Peter says, Lord, forbid it may not be so, and gets rejected with a get behind me, Satan. James and John here are showing they are not in a very different place from Peter. They are still thinking about the practical advantage that's going to come here below of discipleship. And so Jesus presses them in 38, saying, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? This, just like our primary question in the Gospel of Mark, if you've been following it at all, I've repeated it, but I'll do it again. We are looking at the Gospel of Mark, allowing Mark to determine the words, what does it mean to be the Son of God? That's how he opens his Gospel. This is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we just have this habit of, we hear Son of God, we go straight to theology, straight to all the things we've ever read about it, and we put that right into the meaning of the word. <coughs> without Mark allowing Mark to develop his own terminology. Well, we're probably guilty of doing that here. I know I was until I actually got into deep reading it. We hear a cup that Jesus drinks, and we hear baptized, and it's very easy for the mind to go straight to communion and baptism. But in Mark's world, in first century Judaism, these meanings were not quite established in a Eucharistic understanding. Jesus hasn't even done the Last Supper yet. So he's not talking about it in Eucharistic or sacramental terms. What he's speaking about more is, is the cup in the Old Testament is judgment. Throughout all the prophets, the cup is full at the brim, and, and the person on whom God's wrath is poured must drink it to the dregs. The cup is bitter. It's the, the image in the prophets is that it's alcohol with only the hangover. It makes the wicked stumble and fall down. And Jesus is here saying that he is going to drink the cup of God's wrath when he gets to Jerusalem. This is very much a you are not able. So when Jesus asks, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, the very wrath of God that he will take for all those who follow after him? Substitutionary penal atonement, if you want to get technical. All the judgment that Israel has turned up all those sins of the world that will be upon his shoulders. Jesus is asking James and John, are you able to drink that to the very last dread? The very final drop. That's what you're asking me at this position. So likewise, when he says, or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Greek is a terrible language in some ways, and it's really hard to translate because they don't have past tense. They can't add ED to anything. And it just makes it completely unintelligible to English speakers. But Jesus has already been baptized in the sacramental sense by John. What he's speaking of here is more of a general Greek use of the word baptized, which when we find in their literature is a negative situation. If you think about it, in most of those times when your head is underwater, you're either swimming or it's not a good situation. If a sailor finds himself off the boat with his head underwater, baptizo, as the Greeks would say, he's really deep in it. So this is the same thing. Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink this cup of judgment and I'm going to be swallowed up by the waters of the very same thing as my final baptism when I get to Jerusalem. James and John, are you able to, sorry, yeah, James and John, are you able to take that? And 39, they show just how off-base they are of what Jesus is actually saying when they say, we are able. 
Now that then gets hard because if we understand what Jesus is saying, this next bit has to be taken with a little less hyperbole. The cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus is saying that to be his disciples, there will be a sharing in his suffering. Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God that is upon other people. The disciples likewise will do so also, but to a lesser extent. They will bear the sins of other people against them, against God, on their own person, even though they're not guilty. They'll find themselves baptized or wrapped up in the world's troubles for things they did not cause. But Jesus then does his typical move of saying everything is under submission to the Father by ultimately declaring forty that to sit at his right hand or his left hand is not his to grant. That's something prepared by God beforehand. Now, so Jesus has just knocked James and John with this, and they haven't even realized it. And we then now zoom out verse 41 to the ten. The ten hear this, and they began to be angry with James and John. So as far as they're concerned, James and John have gone to get some sort of special privilege <coughs> out of Jesus, and they are undercutting them. And the ten are now mad because James and John are going for special privileges that should be theirs. We see a, a, a incipient church that's fighting and jockeying for positions. So Jesus, in 42, turns around, calls them all together. So Mark now has a change in Jesus' attitude. Jesus has been out in front of the disciples. The disciples have been following his back. They've been trying to guess at what Jesus' motivation is. And now Jesus turns towards them, calls them into the circle that we normally imagine. And he says, you know what? Among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them. And the great ones are tyrants over them. Jesus points out, you are my disciples. Those very sins, the things that build up that cup, those troubles that are going to be the baptism, are the very things you disciples are complaining about. You don't like the Romans. You want the Messiah to come and get rid of the Romans. Well, how does Roman power work? Roman peace is not some sort of concordance. Roman peace is, is there's no one left able to resist. And if the slightest thing comes up, you hammer it down, burn it, torch it, and just for good riddance, salt the earth. That's the Roman method of, of making peace, is just make it so no one is able to even imagine resistance. Well, how do they do that? By using their power and their ability to lord it over other people. Same with Herod. All the coins in, in Jesus' world had stamps of different emperors and kings on them, saying the divine one. The very money that they, they get had the picture of the guy on it, would be taxing you and taking it from you. All the money was on loan from these little emperors and kingslings like Herod. Well, I don't have to tell you we're terrible people. And Jesus is saying, you know what? You're not going to be like all those people you're complaining about. And in 43, but it is not going to be so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be a slave of all. 
Christ is here establishing the principle in the church that those who seek after position, those who are given it, tend to be the lesser in the church. Those who serve, who do those jobs that many of us despise, are esteemed greater in the church. It probably is a fact of history that we will not know on the other side of it, but Peter, James, and John are the names that we know. There's ten disciples whose names that we do not. Peter, James, and John are the ones who go out and do all the whiz-bang preaching in the book of Acts, but we do not know where Bartholomew or, in all reality, Thomas or the others ended up. They're probably the greatest among them. If we were to look at all the disciples' careers, is one of those whose name just shows up in one of those lists and we never hear of again. It's often the fact that in a great many churches that is also how it goes. There's the people who are up front, the folks who are the movers and the shakers, but it is the individuals in the pews. Who see what needs to be done, who do it, who see who needs the word of kindness and give it, that are the greatest in the kingdom. For Christ ultimately then finally binds this up to himself and it's where we'll end. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Christ rightfully, as God, had all the ability to pull out the God card, platinum. He owned everything. That's what happens when you're God. Everyone owed him due allegiance and worship and everything else because of who he was. Yet in coming in the manger, coming as Christ, as serving, as bearing insult, and ultimately this 45 goes back to this cup, this baptism, taking the wrath upon himself, taking the judgment upon himself, the trouble upon himself, Christ is showing that he is doing an act of emptying. The very God who all worship is owed to is here in an act of condescension bowing down and washing the feet of his creation, cleaning up their mess, tolerating their abuse. And Christ's example then and his statement and his claim upon his disciples is that they must do likewise. Unfortunately for many Christians, they get this idea in their head that now they are saved and they can be little godlets. And unfortunately, that comes from a complete misunderstanding of who God is. It's always difficult to preach on the glory of God because the human nature tends to not like that. You go, well, if God has glory, it's somehow bad for me. But if you understand what this is saying about the nature of God, the Son of Man comes not to be served, but to serve, that the glory of God is found ultimately in His cross, in his substitution, in his taking upon himself that which he did not deserve, you get a very different understanding of what it is to be the glorious one. Because ultimately the gospel of Christ is a rejection of the glory of Caesar. The glory of glittering arms, of destroying all those who don't like you. That's not glory, that's violence, a bit of providential favor. 
but that's just the strong arm. There's no particular honor in being just naturally better physically or something like that. But it comes down to a matter of character, of dignity, of all those divine things that we wrap up in omnipotence and everything else. God shows just what a different kind of character it is. He is, and his disciples are called to be. Because for ultimately, if James and John take on this baptism that they've asked Christ, and they aspire to his right and his left hand, they will have to join Christ in that same work of emptying themselves. They've come up to Christ and ask him for favor to try to build themselves up, and what they have been instructed to do instead is to abandon themselves and give themselves up to something greater. Christ will continue in the Gospel of Mark as we go through the season of Lent, heading towards Jerusalem, coming up to the people and proving the prophecy that he has given here true, including his crucifixion, but blessedly including also his resurrection. Let us pray.